You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, thanks for this day. Thanks for bringing us together to worship you and to learn about you. Lord, we ask that you would uh, be with us as we try to think well about our students and about their engagement with social media uh, and especially how you've created us to be in light of that. Lord, we ask all these things in your Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Um, okay, so if you've been up in here for a couple of weeks, uh, we're in the middle of a series talking about the audiences before which your students sort of live, right? It's been your parents with Gil and Rebecca last week, your students living before y'all's audience typically, your students living before the audience of themselves or of the Lord with Cameron two weeks ago. Today, as you can see, will be your students living before the audience of social media. Um, And so we've titled this class Living Before the Audience of the World because in your students' engagement with social media, that's really the situation they're in. Um, For your students and for you, if you're on social media, you are living before the audience of the world. The things you put on the internet will be there you know, give or take a day forever. And so it matters how we think about engaging with social media as Christians, as creatures made in the image of God, and things like that. I think this is a sort of hot-button thing for us to think about today because of the ways that we engage with social media. A lot of the issues that we have with our students and with ourselves um, hold across demographic lines, across socioeconomic lines. Over the last 10 years, I've worked with students in like abject rural and urban poverty and students from Mountain Brook, and they all have similar experiences with social media, especially when it comes to meeting expectations, real or imagined, relative to social media. Um, And I think social media is something that we all just sort of interact with on a day-to-day basis. Uh, I remember three years ago, um, I had to take a spousally mandated month-long break from social media because I had gotten in an argument with this dude on Twitter. I can't even remember what it was about. Three years later, I cannot tell you what it was about, but my little Fitbit watch buzzed, and I looked down to see who had texted me or sent me an email, and it said, we just registered a three-minute workout because my heart rate had jumped above 100 beats per minute in the middle of this argument with this guy that I can't even tell you what it was about now. So social media sort of has an impact on the way that a lot of us do life day to day as we cultivate ourselves digitally and personally. And this is especially an issue for a lot of your students. If it's not already, it will be given that uh, for a lot of them, they're the first group of students growing up with social media from the time Uh, that they were in fourth or fifth grade, right? Like I had a flip phone even until I was in like 11th grade. So social media and its pervasiveness is a new phenomenon even for folks like me. Um, So, you know, having grown up with MySpace, it still was not as acceptable as it is to a lot of our students today. Yeah, and a lot of them don't even know what MySpace is. So um, on to the next one. Some preliminary concerns, I think just some things to say before we get really deep into this. Social media in itself is amoral. Every time I teach this class, I say this, and it feels a little bit less true every time I teach this class and six months goes by or so. 
social media, there's nothing in it, as far as I can tell, that is either morally good or morally bad. Social media in itself is a tool without moral value, more or less. Right? Social media can be used for very good things. It can be used to keep up with old friends after you move. It can be used to share pictures with parents and grandparents. It can be used to talk about out-of-town sports teams in a way that you wouldn't be able to do here. Social media can also be used for very bad things, right? You don't have to dig too far in the public record to find, you know, celebrities or public intellectuals or generally famous persons who said or did tasteless things on social media now are paying the price for that, right? Social media can be used for good things and it can be used for bad things. I think it's a lot easier to sort of take this tool, this gift, this thing, and turn it in a negative direction, especially when you're in 7th through 12th grade or 5th through 12th grade and your frontal lobe and brainstem just aren't quite developed yet. And so the rational thinking piece is not quite there, right? I work with 7th and 8th grade boys. I know that this is not quite the case. I was one, so I can tell you that with intimate familiarity. Secondly, your parenting effectiveness does not depend on your stance relative to social media. All right, If you have decided that for your students it is not fruitful for them to have a social media account, that does not make you a better or worse parent than someone else who has decided that it's okay for their students to have a Facebook or Twitter account. Right, Your um, fiber as a parent is not dependent on how you feel about social media, right? Um, there's no need to meet somebody at the Mountain Brook Club or at Tzatziki's or whoever else and talk to them and hear that their students don't have a Twitter account and think, oh, I'm you know a worse parent because I've allowed my kid to have a Twitter account or to think I'm a better parent because I'm allowing my kid to be socialized in a way that they are not. This is their prerogative and your prerogative. This is a decision that can only be made by you and the folks in your house. So your Justification as a parent, praise God, does not come from your stance on social media. Finally, if you choose to go the route, or if you're choosing to go the route, allowing you, and this is true for you guys and for myself, as much as it is for your 7th and 8th or ninth, 10th, whatever grade students, social media and its influence, they've got to be moderated, right? Um, this maybe looks like device timers on your phone, um, 30 minutes for Twitter and then the app shuts down, right? Or uh, if your students are on Facebook or Instagram, just having their username and password, checking in on what they're doing on those social media sites here and then. Those are good ways to moderate social media to sort of make sure that your student isn't spending more time on their digital self than they are on their like real flesh and blood self or on their digital friendships and relationships than they are in their real flesh and blood relationships, right? So Nick Saban, this is exactly the reason that he doesn't let freshmen talk to the media, right? Because they're just not quite ready to speak to these folks in this lion's den without any preparation, right? Your students, because of their you know cognitive development, are just not in a place to use social media on their own in a moderated way. I know this because I'm 26 years old and I'm still not in a place to use social media in a moderated way. So all those are things to keep in mind 
as sort of guardrails or limiting concepts as we talk about this over the next little bit. <clears throat> Some theological foundations for us as we think about your students or yourselves, myself, in relation to social media and in relation to the Lord. Your students are made in the image of a relational God. God, before He creates the heavens and the earth, exists as one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three of these persons are in a relationship. They are in community with each other before the earth is created. God is by nature relational. right? And so when your students, when you, when I am made in the image of this God, you're made with a desire for relationship. You're made with a desire for community, for interaction with other humans who are also made in the image of God. You are made for relationship and for relationship with a very specific God, the triune God of the Bible. Right. As a side note, this is something that's very unique to Christianity. There's no other reason, religion with a God who is by nature inherently relational. And so what that says to us is this is a big piece of human life. Right? God has made you to be in relationship with other people. Right? The Bible is full of relationship. Marriage is a model as a relationship of Christ's relationship with his church. Um, your relationship with your kids as parents is a relationship built on God's relationship with his people. Um, relationships are sort of the interpretive, one of the interpretive keys of the Bible. Right? And so this is what your students are made for. They seek relationships with others. There are a number of elements to these relationships, empathy, sympathy, humor, a lot of these things. Acceptance is probably one of the bigger elements of these relationships. Your students, you, me, we're all looking for acceptance in these relationships. Typically are looking to uh, be known for who you are and for somebody to say, I love you because of this and despite of this, right? Um, that's the dream, right? To be fully known and to be accepted regardless of your baggage or, um, you know, any dirt that you might carry around or how wonderful a person you are, that you're loved because of who you are and who you've been made in the image of, not anybody else, right? So this acceptance piece, I think, is the engine that drives a lot of the social media uh, train when it comes to our students, when it comes to us as well. So in Genesis 1 and 2, man is living with great relationships, right? He's on wonderful terms with Eve. Eve is on wonderful terms with Adam. They're both on great terms with God. They live with God in the Garden of Eden, right? Unbroken relationships. Everything's kosher. And then Genesis 3 happens. Adam and Eve sin against God. Not only is their relationship with God broken, their relationship with each other is broken, right? God says, your desire, Eve, will be for your husband, but Adam, you will tend towards ruling over her um, and being not as gentle as you should be, etc. And so all relationships fracture as a result of Genesis 3. And so as relationships fracture, the safety that comes with unconditional acceptance is fractured, right? Humans have sinned. They have removed themselves from God's presence and so in themselves are no longer accepted by God in their natural state. What's more, that relationship between Adam and Eve has been fractured, right? So they're not in a great place either. After that, the desire and the need for humans is to be justified. 
It's a word that's used a lot in the Bible. We talk about it a lot at Advent. Justification is a legal term or an accounting term in the Bible. It means that you are reckoned or accounted or seen as righteous. Right? It's not simply that you're innocent and you got a blank slate and God's forgiven your sins and now you've got to go color in the page when God says you're justified. He says not only have your sins been forgiven, but you're considered fully righteous, right? Jesus' merit, all of Jesus' works are transferred to you in this sort of wire transfer gig. Um, <clears throat> so that's what that means in general when we talk about justification. When we talk about what it means for our students and their relationship to social media, what we mean is that your student wants to be justified. They want to be seen by their peers as in the right Whatever that means, that might be uh, they want to be seen by their peers as cool, want to be seen by their peers as funny or as thoughtful or intellectual. They like to be seen by their peers as daring. If you have a son or even a daughter, really, they want to be um, seen by their friends and accepted, right? And so their actions on social media and really in face-to-face interactions are toward that end to being justified, right? A lot of the things your students post or see on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or, you know, probably not LinkedIn, but like Pinterest or whatever is toward that end to being justified, to being accepted, right? That's the key for all of this. And that really is just the seat of original sin deep down their gut that says, I know something's wrong, right? Like I know that not every relationship I enter into is unconditional, not every relationship I'm in is with somebody who will accept me for who I am, warts and all. And so your students, and you, and me, and every person who has ever lived has desired this acceptance into a community. I'll talk a little bit about this later, but the church and the family and a number of other things, right? Not just those two things, but um, any number of sort of solid, helpful communities. It might be a Little League soccer team, whatever it is are helpful antidotes to the desire that your kids have for communities um, instead or alongside social media, right? When your kids are on Facebook and Twitter, what they're looking for is acceptance and community. They can get that in a, you know, you need other real flesh and blood community to supplement that. It's like uh, Skittles and apples, right? When you want something sweet, you go for Skittles, but what your body's really telling you is like, I need an apple or some calcium or whatever it is that I get from fruit or whatever it is. So this is sort of what we're working with, a theological view of your student as we move forward. Your student desires acceptance, and to a certain extent, they feel like they get that from social media, whether it's a like or a reply or a comment, whatever it is. It's false acceptance at the end of the day, or at least, at the very least, incomplete acceptance. And so, that's where we're at theologically. So as we move on, let's think about the teenage years. Um, This is an awkward time in life in general, right? You all were teenagers not super long ago. You remember how weird this is. And now, for your students, this awkward-as-anything phase of life is on complete display for the world to see. Right. Imagine how terrifying your middle school years were, and now pretend that there was a camera on you all the time. Right. That makes me want to vomit. And so <laughs> here we are in the teenage years. Even as far back as 1944, here's a quote from Life magazine. There's a time in the life of every American girl, 
insert boy there too. That's this is the same deal for them. When the most important thing in the world is to be one of a crowd of other girls or boys and to act and speak and dress exactly as they do. Y'all, seriously, this is not just girls. Okay, I work with boys. It's the reason that when I go to my Thursday morning Bible study, everybody has on the same pair of AFCO shorts, okay? <laughs> the, like, we all desire to be accepted and to fit into it. This is not, I'm not hating on AFCO shorts. I, I got a few myself. So, um, <laughs> but we all desire to be accepted into this community. We all want to be justified, as it were. We all want our peers and friends to look at us, your students desire this as well, and say, you're cool, you're funny, we're all looking for this positive acknowledgement. So that's what we key into here. And in 2002, this is uh, an op-ed by a high school girl in Minneapolis who wrote into the Star Tribune with a letter to the editor, and she says, how do you dress to please yourself, your parents, and your peers? You can't. Teens end up compromising their values to fit in. If we intend to make it through high school or even junior high without being tormented, then we must dress to please our peers. Right? So um, think of the language, whatever you will, but these are both speaking to the same desire to be accepted, right? And especially our girl here in 2002 has really keyed in on some of the real difficulty of trying to live before so many different audiences, right? She's trying to please her friends, her peers, her parents, her teachers, any number of folks. And the idea is all toward the end of being accepted, right? Of being considered cool or classy or any number of other things. So we are really working here um, with a problem that's not just now, right? Even before social media, this was a thing. In 1944, this is an issue that our students are dealing with. Um, and so I think social media just sort of puts its finger on that place of insecurity and just pushes really hard. And so it's not just that you're dressing to please your peers or your parents or your teachers. You're dressing to please, you're acting to please, you're studying to please everyone in the world, really, as far as social media goes. So... Um, your students, in general, are living in a fishbowl, right? Um, Y'all have probably heard this before, like there is this big round bowl and they are the fish in the middle of it and people can look from any side and see any angle of them that they would like to, right? Um, this was less the case on MySpace because you could only like throw a picture up there. Now, um, you take a video of yourself on Snapchat or Instagram and people are able to sort of uh, either justify you and say, yeah, that's awesome, man. You're riding down a hill in a grocery cart. Like, that's so cool. Or they're able to say, hey, that outfit is like really rough. Like you're mixing stripes and plaids and that's a no-go. Um, and so your student will be unjustified, right, or not accepted. And so <clears throat> your students are living in a fishbowl. They're always taking in and putting out media. They're always receiving something from Instagram, right? Every time you hit that explore page and you see this picture of this airbrushed person who's like the most beautiful person that anyone has ever seen before, right? They've like never stayed out in the sun for too long. They always put on their sunscreen like they have never missed a gym day. Everything is perfect about this person. And I see that, you see that, your students see that. And the perception is what? I've missed the mark, right? Because this is the goal 
to be accepted, to be considered pretty or handsome or smart or funny, and I am not there, right? I ate one too many oatmeal cream pies and just can't quite get to that place today. And so that's where we're at. Our students, more often than not, way more often than not, are communicating via screen rather than via face-to-face -face conversation. So this is a quote from Elizabeth McElhaney and some other social psychologists from a study in 2011. They found that peer relationships provide an important context for learning and developing interpersonal skills that are necessary for both friendships and romantic relationships later in life. It's important for us, I think, to ask what interpersonal skills or just personal skills our students are learning as they take in social media, mm -hmm. as they um, see pictures of airbrushed folks on social media or, um, you know, sort of take in these images of folks who seem to have it all, right? And they think this is the expectation or this is attainable or this is the goal, right? Every time you see something like that, you get a little bit more discouraged, right? Or you realize um, this is a little bit farther and farther out of my reach, right? And so that's sort of what we're thinking about when we think about interpersonal skills. How is this affecting your student's self-talk? How is this affecting their self-image, things like that, um, in terms of where are they finding their justification or their acceptance, right? Um, <clears throat> in an effort to sort of put some flesh on that, we have this concept of the looking glass self from C.H. Cooley, who was a sociologist in the 20th century. This is a really helpful concept, I think, for us, not only to think about our students and the way they interact with the world and with social media, but also for ourselves. Um, Cooley says, individuals develop their sense of self by observing how they're perceived by others, right? So uh, a fine example of this would be right now. I'm sitting up here, I'm talking to you guys, and based on your bodily reactions, your body language, or your nonverbal cues, I am making assessments of myself about how well I'm doing, right? Every time you lead a meeting at work, you probably do a similar thing, right? Thanks, I appreciate that. Um, and every time you speak to your kids, right, based on their nonverbal cues, you're assessing whether or not you're being a little too harsh, whether you need to be maybe a little harsher, right, or um, whether you're asking the right or wrong questions, whether you're holding their attention, things like that, right? As you do those things, in the back of your mind, you're forming an opinion of yourself, right? And so you're perceiving, essentially, how you look in the eyes of someone else. So a corollary of this is that your concepts of yourself or your thoughts about who you are are built in relation to others, not in solitude, right? So you are born with a personality with certain quirks and great things and, you know, a general skeleton of a personality for sure, a certain temperament. But over the course of your life as you interact with folks, have different experiences, that raw self, that raw person is sort of chiseled into who you are, right? With your permission in a lot of ways and uh, maybe not so much in other ways. Your concepts to yourselves are built in relation to others. Your relationships in general um, have a pretty big stake in the formation of yourself as a person. This is the case as well for your students. Um, everybody that you build the self or that you experience life in relation with is called a mirror, right? And so 
Again, y'all are my mirrors right now, or your colleagues are your mirrors when you're leading that meeting, or your students are your mirrors when you're speaking to them. And so you're sort of forming this self-image in relation to their idea of you. This fits fairly well with a concept of humanity as we read of it in Genesis chapter 1, especially 127, where um, <clears throat> God makes man in his image, right? Eve serves as a mirror for Adam. Um, God, hopefully, ideally, serves as a mirror for both of them in the garden. Now, part of the problem with this is that everything shifts after Genesis 3, right? Those mirrors don't become... Uh, they move from being people in whom we're in perfect relationship with to judges or lawgivers, right? As we see these mirrors, we constantly think, I fail to measure up, right? I'm not being justified or accepted because I'm not meeting the expectation of this or that mirror, right? I'm not meeting um, the expectation of somebody who has expectations of me. Right. This has always been the case, but it's especially the case now. The advent of social media drastically increases the number of mirrors. Right. It sort of sends us into this, um, you know, forgive my crassness, but it sort of spins, sends us into this low-grade schizophrenia. Right. Because you're always trying to please or um, meet the expectations of um, different folks, different groups on social media. Right. We have different, even cyber selves, right? Like I'm a totally different person on Facebook and Twitter than I am on LinkedIn, right? Like you would think I'm the most professional 26-year-old ever if you saw me on LinkedIn. And if you saw me on Facebook, you would think this guy spends way too much time watching Washington Capitals hockey. Um, And so this sort of fractures the self. Have you guys ever seen Harry Potter? Right, so Voldemort sort of fractures himself into seven different items And he pays the price for this over the course of his life, right? He's not able to love people. He's not able to enjoy other folks. He only has a thirst for power and not relationships, right? We have a different cyber self for LinkedIn, for Twitter, for Facebook, for Instagram, for whatever. And so there's a tendency sometimes, for your students especially, to feel the sensation of being almost a fractured self, like you're a different person in a personal relationship, in a flesh-and-blood conversation with folks than you are on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram or Snapchat, right? And so I think the push here for us is to move for wholeness over highlight reels, right? When your student gets on Instagram and they see that person on their Explore page who is, like, just gorgeous, right? Whether it's a male or a female and they're comparing themselves to that person, what they don't see is the like 100 pictures that came before that where the light wasn't shining exactly right or the shadows were funky or the person had to like suck themselves in to get the right picture, right? There's so much that happens in the background and all you're seeing is this person's highlight reel, right? You'll never see a picture of somebody who spilled coffee on their shirt on the way to work on Facebook, okay? That's not the not top 10, right? So um, what the push here I think is for is as your students are engaging in social media to constantly impress upon them that this is not this person's normal life, right? Or, um, 
you don't have to measure up to that expectation because that person is not even measuring up to that expectation, right? Um, or to keep in mind that maybe your student, like, or it'd be helpful to, for you to model some of this behavior on Facebook to post a status about how, you know, tough day or spilled coffee on my shirt on the way to work or, you know, whatever. A lot of this will come from you in terms of modeling the fact that it's better to be a whole person, right? To um, take all of your experiences that God has ordained for you to have and for your student to have in their lives and sort of weave it into this one complete, coherent person instead of operating as different folks on any number of different social media channels. Um, something that makes this especially hard is that social media operates as a shame-honor culture. Uh, shame-honor cultures give you pretty much two options, right? Perfection or failure, right? And this is the case for social media if you live in Mountain Brook or if you live in Oak Park, Sacramento, if you live in the Watts neighborhood of L.A., or if you live in Vestavia or Homewood. This is the case no matter where you are. Social media gives you two options, and one is absolute perfection, and the other is total failure, right? Because what you're putting out there is out there forever, right? I heard a story on NPR the other day about these folks interviewing these girls and boys who will post pictures on Instagram, and they said, if I don't get more than 300 likes, I take the picture down. Bro, I've never gotten 300 likes on a picture in my life. And so, like, what these kids are doing, though, is they're saying there are two options. Perfection, being accepted 300 times plus, or failure, in which we try to just, like, shove it under the rug and say, this was not worth my time. It was not worth anyone else's time. So I think, again, the way to maybe move toward helping mediate some of this influence is to stop excluding the middle, right? Um... If you see something that your child has posted, a picture that's like, I don't know, maybe less than perfect, saying, hey, you looked really nice in that picture, I guess, you know, and just helping them cultivate a realistic view of social media, one that's fully orbed and um, gives them a total view of what social media is, right? Twitter's an iceberg. You got the top 10% that makes it onto Twitter and the like 90% of you know, real pithy tweets that got deleted before that because they weren't clever enough, right? Social media is the same across all levels. And so as your kids engage in social media, it is so crucially important to help them realize, like, you're only seeing these folks' highlight reels. And you're probably only putting out your own highlight reel, right? So um, as your kids sort of form themselves in light of that audience, um, that's, I think that goes a long way in terms of helping develop a healthy self-image relative to social media. So, like we said earlier, we have a desire to be justified. Um, <clears throat> so this is a quote from Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff in a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. Um, they talk about folks seeing pictures of girls and women, and they go on to say it's a similar deal with men whose beauty is artificially enhanced excuse me, making girls ever more insecure about their own appearance, right? This is the audience your students are living in front of, right? They believe, as they've sort of cultivated their own looking glass self, that everyone out there that's going to see this picture, this status, is making this kind of value judgment about them, right? And there's always that thought in the back of your head, right? Like, 
when you check that Facebook status an hour later to see if anybody liked it or loved it or laughed at it or did the thumbs down thing. Whatever it is, um, this is the situation that we're in as folks who use social media. Gene Twingy, who's like the like iGen expert on social media and its impact on students, says, the more we use social media, the more opportunities we have to see that friends and peers are hanging out without us, right? So this is not even just, uh, you know, how do I look aesthetically and physically thing um, as your students are putting things on social media or taking things in from social media. They are making value judgments about who's their actual friend and who's not based on, you know, who's in the picture that they're seeing. Um, I'm trying to zoom through this so we can have time to ask some questions. So we all have a desire for this kind of joy, right? And not just happiness, that sort of fading that you get from this little dopamine rush when somebody likes your Facebook status or your Instagram picture, right? You're looking for something that's not conditioned upon your performance on social media. We're looking for unconditional acceptance, like we said earlier, and Facebook and Twitter are great places to not get that, okay? So according to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, students who spend more time on average on screen are more markedly unhappy than those who don't. Um, but students engage in these social media patterns in order to find happiness, right? Um, this is the Skittles and Apple's illusion earlier, right? Your students are desiring community. They're desiring acceptance and they're going to social media to get it, but that's something that social media can't offer at best. It's a supplement to those things that already exist. Um, so finally, ideally, we're instilling in our students, both here at Advent and in your own homes, a sort of justified joy, right? Ideally, um, your students are experiencing the gospel in your house, here at Advent. They're being told every week from myself, from Cameron, from Elizabeth, from Rebecca and Lucy Kate, that you are loved and accepted apart from your performance. First, by the God of the Bible who created everything you see around you. And second, mostly by your parents, right? Your parents are hopefully um, embodying the gospel in your love and acceptance of your kids. This doesn't mean never disciplining your kids. Of course not, you know, if they do something ridiculous. But what we have in mind here is a sort of acceptance that doesn't matter um, <clears throat> in general if they come home with a B or an A, right? If they score 30 points in the basketball game or if they barely get on the court and hit a layup in garbage time, right? Your acceptance of your students mirrors God's acceptance of them and God's acceptance of you, right? The gospel is the engine that really drives this sort of acceptance and community. Um, so uh, joy over against this false or incomplete happiness we experience from social media is something that's driven by that justification, by that unconditional acceptance that your students experience at the feet of the cross and in your own house. Um, this, believe it or not, um, your students will only spend 18% of their waking hours at school and around their peers by the time they graduate high school on average. They will spend the other 70% and change with you. And so what you instill in them, whether you are cool with social media in their lives or not, 
will help form their looking glass self, will help form their conception of themselves in a way that we hope is pointed toward Christ, toward the gospel, and toward your unconditional love and acceptance of them. So that's what we have. We have like two or three minutes for questions, but I'll sit down here and chat if you guys are curious. So we can maybe open it up if you guys have thoughts or questions or letters to the editor. Yes, ma'am. Sure. Yeah, I, that's a really good question. I have a lot of friends like my age who are not really on social media. Like I have a Facebook account because my grandparents get frustrated with me if I deactivate it. But that's like the only reason I have it, right? I went off Twitter for a year and then got back on for three weeks and it was like so not worth it. There are a lot of folks my age who grew up with MySpace and Facebook who are heading a similar way, uh, not least of which because the more involved you are with social media, the more really anyone can see into your life, right? It only takes getting so many of those uh, targeted ads on your Facebook page for the thing that you just looked up on Amazon to make you feel a little bit weird about that. So, uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, etc., they run off of market forces, and so it's hard to see folks deciding not to use them completely. Um, it does seem like trends, especially with my sort of 10-year age bracket, and even some folks younger than me that generally is just not worth the trouble. Um, so I'm hopeful that maybe it'll start to lose its cultural hegemony in the years to come. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I mean, I think teens are always going to want to Definitely, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Anything else? Any other comments or questions? I see so much of the pressure that my, my daughter is 11, so she doesn't have any sure. idea, but some of the pressure that she experiences in her life, we talked about it earlier, I feel so much. And I find that um, the human nature of the, of the PTO moms is intense. Yeah. And I feel like I, I'm under a lot of scrutiny with all the time. I feel like I need to remind myself of my acceptance in Jesus. Yeah. And I feel like I'll never be able to communicate that to her if I don't do it, if I don't accept it. Sure, yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, you can only give what you have, but, I mean, a huge part of the gospel is realizing your own lack of worth, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, modeling that, that wholeness over a highlight reel that you're some esoteric Christian mom is much more you know, impactful in the long run than pretending that, you know, being united to Jesus Christ never comes with any hardship or self-doubt. You know, the gospel's for sinners. And so, like, praise God, that's everyone in this room, you know. Yes, ma'am. I had a quick comment. I had coffee with Gil at one point, and we were talking about friendships and kind of developing and just thinking about this. And in perspective with that is, one of the things he said that really struck me was that friendships like are like gold coins. Mm-hmm. They're gold coins. And so kind of having that framework, and I find that I use it a lot with my kids. Yeah. And just like the people and how they respond to you on social media or wherever it is. Yeah. Finding your rare gold coins. Yeah. That, that just really helped me to be able to. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. And that's a really, I think, concrete example that, you know, maybe students in fifth to twelfth grade can grasp easily. 
think these uh, group texts too are a whole other form of this kind of thing too. Oh, for sure. They may have mentioned it earlier. I wasn't here at the beginning, but that's something that we we do in our family. We have to watch these group texts that can get out of control. Oh yeah, quickly. for sure. Yeah, you know, everyone's a keyboard warrior, right? Um, yeah, that's good. All right, well, uh, it's about, you know, your kids are probably getting out, so, but I will be up here if y'all want to chat a little more, whatever. Yeah. yeah, thank you guys. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.